and welcome to Listen to the Words. I'm Evelyn Price, and this is our inaugural episode, the very first episode of the podcast where we actually listen to the lyrics. And I'm here with my co-host, Steve. Hello. (laughs) And we have three songs for you, which is the format that the podcast is usually going to take. So... Whoever is on or one of us, if we don't have a guest, will pick three songs and we go over them and break them down for you. And today we're going to be going over Real World by Matchbox 20, Bad Out of Hell by Meatloaf, and Born in the USA by Bruce Springsteen. So let's get right into it. Yeah. Um, Real World is a song that we have talked about many, many times before. Yes, at length. (laughs) And... uh, I am not even going to pretend like I'm not a, a Matchbox 20 fan. and I, I, I came to them late. I was, <laughs> I, was, I was a little too snooty for, for Matchbox 20 in, I, in my yeah. younger years. I realize it's not cool, but that that's fine. But that's kind of what makes it cool. <laughs> I, and I mean, there's... Also, Rob Thomas's hair was off-putting to me. His hair... It, it was the, the like, faux Beatles oasis, but shorter. Is it? It's like, kind. it was kind of a Caesar cut and at the, it, but at it, this. But it, he clearly spent time making it look like he didn't spend any time on it. <laughs> and that threw me. I, I just always like the songwriting, no matter what. So, like, if I like a song, then I like a song, and it doesn't matter. I kind of don't believe in guilty pleasures anymore. No. No. So it's it's either a pleasure or a shame. Yeah, and this <laughs> song is a pleasure in so so many ways. It it really is. Um, before we get into the actual lyrics, I just want to talk a little about a little bit about Rob Thomas himself. Sure. In the research for this episode, I did I did not a deep dive into Rob Thomas, but just just enough to sort of get us started. Um, but if you look at his wiki picture, which producer will will put somewhere. Um, eventually, um, because it is just this amazing picture on his wiki that says everything about him. I'll show it to Steve right now so that he can see it. Um, he just has this look on his face of shell shock, and I feel like that really says all there is to say about Rob Thomas. I would read that as quiet contentment. <laughs> I see. Maybe maybe it's a mix of the both. Amusement. And that, that's kind of what Rob Thomas is. But I actually didn't realize that he had a horrible, horrible childhood. <laughs> yeah. Okay, this is all new to, new to me, so, yeah, so and school me on the ways. It's going to get a little depressing just for a second, um, because his mother was an alcoholic who sometimes beat him, and then he ended up taking care of her at 12, because his sister just cut out and was like, no, sorry, you're taking care of mom when she gets diagnosed with cancer. And uh, we're not going to dwell on that, but then he was homeless after that. So, like, Rob Thomas, I always assumed, was just sort of, like, since he's such a pretty boy, I was, like, surely he had, like, a, a very wealthy upbringing. But no. No. Yeah, he was just dirt poor. He was a street kid. Right. Basically. And so some of my favorite facts that I found about him were when he was 17, he stole a Camaro. And spent two months in county jail. A Camaro. Bitching Camaro. (laughs) Yes. And once he did acid and he decided to play with dry ice and he burned his hand so badly, he almost had to get them amputated. Okay. Yes. (laughs) So with that little preface about Rob Thomas, let's talk about real world. Yeah, uh, 
Let's talk about what we love about this song. Well, what I found on, on again, Wikipedia is the best invention. But the intro for Real World w- is just written hilariously. And it, it kind of really does say everything there is to be- say about the song. What I, what I really like about this song is, is that it, it has this strange kind of air of childlike naivety to it. But I, I, I just wanted to... I, it's amazing. I'm sorry. Proceed. So the song was written by lead singer Rob Thomas, Camaro guy, and details him wondering what it would be like if he lived in various settings other than the current one, including a superhero, a rainmaker, and being a boss at a job, and if they would worsen or improve his life. So that's the general gist of the song. But when you actually listen to the lyrics, <laughs> they don't make any sense. So the first verse where he's talking about being a rainmaker, right? Yes. I wonder what it's like to be the rainmaker. We were talking earlier before the show about what a rainmaker actually is. Right, right. And you have like the kind of shamanic rainmaker who does a ritual to to summon moisture for the crops and the harvest or to end a drought. And then you have your like fiduciary financial rainmaker who is someone who attracts big clients and, and big money into your firm or, or, you know, in the case of the John Grisham, like attracts other clients to the firm. Right. So that's what a rainmaker actually is. But what Rob Thomas seems to think it is, is somebody that puts rain in boxes. I wonder what it's like to know that I made the rain. I'd store it in boxes with little yellow tags on every one. You can come and see them when I'm done. So imagine this in your head. First of all, you can't store rain in boxes. Soggy boxes. Right. Soggy cardboard, never going to happen. And also, he's inviting people in to look at these Right, as if he stores them in a warehouse somewhere. Right. So he made the rain. A purveyor of rain who stocks them for future use. Right. So that's what he would do if he was a rainmaker and not Rob Thomas. Right. Further proving that Rob Thomas really doesn't know how to do anything but be Rob Thomas. That's Rob Thomas. Matchbox 20. Sing a song. Shut up. All right. Verse two. He wonders what it's like to be a superhero. Superhero. What he would do if he could fly around downtown. Right. From some other planet, he'd get this funky high on a yellow sun, and his friends would all be stunned. Right. But... So clearly, his idea of super... First off, first reference is Superman. Right. Right. And I like to think that Rob Thomas was high and had just watched Mallrats, because the phrasing, yellow sun, specifically mirrors when Brody is talking about Kal-El... And he's like, his Kryptonian DNA is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. So I just picture Rob Thomas baked out of his mind and having <laughs> just watched Mallrats when he's coming up with this song. And then there's the, the the notion of what a superhero actually does. I wonder where I'd go if I could fly around downtown. Like, he doesn't say anything like, I'm going to save people. You go where the crime is. <laughs> like, the crimes, like LexCorp, you're super. Right, right. Like, you, would, you, would, you would go downtown, you would fight crime. And he's not even going to bother with a secret identity Mm-mm. because all of his friends will be stunned. So it's Rob Thomas superhero. It's not, right. you know, it's not the Matchbox Avenger. It's it's none of that. And again, we talked about Rob Thomas's early life. And I sort of assumed from the song that he didn't know shit about shit because of this next verse. 
But now we know he's 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 seen hard times. Right, Dusty he's seen Rose hard style. times, but he maybe never had a like actual job. Because in verse 3, when he starts talking about what it would be like to be the head honcho, he has this strange vision of what it's like to work. Oh, I don't make me want to change my Which comes to my favorite line in real world, which I didn't really understand what he was saying until we looked it up. And he, he says, I'd shout out an order. I think we're out of this. Man, get me some. Boy, don't make me want to change my tone. Right. Which... <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, have you ever had a boss that sounds like that? That sounds like a just a stock evil boss. Well, in that scenario, okay. So, I think we're out of this man. Get me some. So, he's talking to the person who regulates his inventory. Who controls his stock. Right. But then he calls them boy and says, don't make me want to change my tone like he's a prison warden in Cool Hand Luke. <laughs> and it's, it's, I'm unclear on the hierarchy of this situation because normally that kind of strident tone would not be reserved for the person handling your inventory and ordering. Like, does he... Does also, he, does what, he, like, is that, like, I, I love the idea of a boss just saying... I think we're out of this, man. Give me some. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I just don't understand what, how he chose the things that he details being. Because none of them seem to have anything to do with the other. Because being a superhero is not about living in the real world. Neither is this rainmaker scenario. Well, all of I these mean, aren't, aren't all of these various scenarios like things that he presents as escapes from the real world that's hassling him. I mean, so he's but the like, boss thing is the real world, so he seems a little confused. But not this boss. This boss <laughs> is clearly not the real world. This boss. This boss is some sort of like stereotypical kind of southern blowhard. <laughs> And the the chorus, I guess, is where we're supposed to get the gist of the song. And right now, read it, looking at the lyrics of the chorus, I feel like we're being reprimanded from beyond for taking this much time in it. <laughs> Straight up, what what did you hope to learn about here? I don't know, Rob. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't even know why why we're doing this, Rob. Why why you've put us through this? Um. And the the bridge is the please don't change, please don't break. The only thing that seems to work at all is you. And suddenly it turns into like a love song, right? Yeah, like like some sort some sort of of pleading address to a lover, like, right? Like the real world's terrible. You're the only good thing at it. But meanwhile, I'm just gonna speculate wildly wildly on these vocations I I know nothing about. Right. So I think that the thesis of the song really is the the repetition of "I wish the real world would just stop hassling me." I think that he came up with that and was like, "I wish the real world would stop hassling me." I'm gonna write a whole song around this, but he didn't know where to go with that. So that's how we ended up with Rainmaker, superhero, head honcho, head honcho, <laughs> head honcho, which. Honcho and soggy boxes. Again, soggy boxes. A lifetime supply of soggy boxes. Soggy Kurt, boxes see, by Matchbox Twenty. Kurt, I mean, and it, he might very well be the head honcho of the rain store 
And maybe they're out of rain, and then he has to step into his guise as Rainmaker to, to resupply. Maybe his superhero name is the Rain, the rain Maker. Maker. <laughs> you can come and see that one. So, so anyway, I, I love Rob Thomas, and we can fight about Matchbox 20 if, if you want. Well, I, there's no fight here. I've I've come to embrace Rob Thomas in Matchbox 20. He has some some smooth pop stylings that that <laughs> I I cannot find fault with. So but what I'd like to talk about is one of my favorite batshit crazy songwriters of all time. Mm. Uh, the legendary Jim Steinman. Jim Steinman. For for everyone who doesn't know Jim Steinman, uh, he's written 11 billion songs that you may have not known were Jim Steinman, but I guarantee you know the songs. Uh, Bonnie Tyler's biggest hits, uh, Total Clips of the Heart, Holding Out for a Hero. Jim Steinman, he also produced her solo record. Uh, Meatloaf. Basically, uh, Meatloaf is a singer. Jim Steinman is the brains. Right. They were originally supposed to be a duo. It was supposed to be Meatloaf and Jim Steinman, like Simon and Garfunkel. And then eventually, Meatloaf was getting all the credit. But if you look at the Bad Out of Hell album and the subsequent albums, it says songs by Jim Steinman. Uh, Jim Steinman comes from this bombastic, like, it's it's called Wagnerian rock. Like, his, his influences are Wagner and Phil Spector. And also Bruce Springsteen, which which ties in because uh, two members of the E Street Band play prominent roles on Bad Out of Hell. Uh, Max Weinberg, the mighty, mighty Max, <laughs> drummer extraordinaire. And uh, also Roy Batan, whose piano is unmistakable. If you listen to the piano on Jungle Land on the Born to Run record by Bruce Springsteen, and you listen to the piano on the Bad Out of Hell record, it's it's unmistakable. He's got some other heavy hitters on that record on that record as well. Uh, Edgar Winner on saxophone, uh, Todd Rundgren produced with Jim Steinman, and it's got that Phil Spector wall of sound vibe. I but, always think of Jim Steinman like um, Winslow Leach, which one of the, if you haven't seen Phantom of the Paradise, you should pause this podcast and go watch Phantom of the, Phantom of the Paradise and come back. My music is for Phoenix, only she can sing it. Um, because Winslow Leach is the best. That movie is the best. But he's basically a songwriter who just stays in the background and has other people take his voice and his songs. Right. Jim Steinman's like, biggest Achilles heel is that while he's a passable singer, like all of, his, all of the singers that most successfully interpret his work have a much more dynamic vocal presence and range. Um, Celine Dion, uh, Air Supply, Barry Manilow, uh, and Meatloaf, who's the, the most consistent interpreter of his work. So, basically, you have Bad Outta Hell, which is an attempt to create the most epic crash song of all time in the tradition of, like, leader of the pack, and, uh, you know, uh, all of uh, Dead Man's Curve. And, well, here's a question. Can Jim Steinman not sing? Is that why he gave other people his songs? He can carry a tune, but he does not have the dynamic voice. If you listen to the female vocalists like Bonnie Tyler, or if you listen to, like, the other Jim Steinman projects like uh, Pandora's Box, uh, with Ellen Foley handling a lot of the, the heavy lifting, he always has these, like, 
they have a similar brassy, uh, very robust vocal sound. And the thing with Jim Steinman that really screwed him over career-wise, at least in some ways, I mean, he, he sold a billion records. He's in the Songwriting Hall of Fame. But by the time it came around to record uh, the sequel to Bad Out of Hell, the follow-up, which was a, an unexpected runaway success, one of the biggest selling albums of all time, Meatloaf had blown out his vocal cords due to uh, exhaustion, substance abuse problems, whatnot. So Steinman sings a lot of the songs himself, and he tries admirably. And the songs are still amazing. They're still the you can see his fingerprints all over them. But uh, the songs that would have been handled by Meatloaf are handled by a gentleman named Rory Dodd, who who does a great job, but he just doesn't have that same dynamic quality. And the problem I always have with Meatloaf fans is Meatloaf fans tend to follow Meatloaf from record to record, and they don't necessarily kind of give Jim Steinman the, the credit he deserves as the brains behind the whole thing. And uh, you can see that with, like, Bad Out of Hell 3, for example, where in uh, lieu of Jim Steinman, even though he recorded Jim Steinman's songs, uh, Steinman had sued to keep him from using the Bad Out of Hell name, and Meatloaf just decided to record the album with Desmond Child, who's another one of these singer-songwriters who doesn't have much of a singing voice. And so Desmond Child has been behind the scenes on a ton of Top 40 hits. He's like the power ballad, like hair metal kind of Jim Steinman. He wrote, co-wrote uh, I Hate Myself for, Lo for Loving You, for Joan Jett, uh, Angel for Aerosmith, uh, significant amounts of the like Kiss Asylum album. Like he worked closely with Paul Stanley. So he's like the, the theme... not the not evil Doctor Luke. Uh, yeah, the theme from Shocker, <laughs> the masterpiece. Wes Craven Shocker. Uh, yeah, Shocker. Yeah, it's a it, that that's Desmond Child, and that's who he got. That's who Meatloaf got to replace Steinman. All right, but, so let's talk about but specifically they can't match, that out of hell. They can't match. <laughs> The insane dystopian vision <laughs> of Jim Steinman. So, to take you right into verse one. Well, first of all, when people listen to Bad Out of Hell, yeah. generally, they <laughs> ju they just listen to the chorus. Right, because all the word there are so many words in the song and they're coming so fast that the only time they can catch a breath and sing along is whenever they get to the chorus. Immediately, we launch into the most grandiose, insane kind of fever dream imagery. Uh, the sirens are screaming and the fires are howling way down in the valley tonight. There's a man in the shadows with a gun in his eyes and a blade shining over her bright. And here, this is one of my favorite lines in any song ever written. There's evil in the air and there's thunder in the sky and a killer's on the bloodshot streets. And down in the tunnel where the deadly are rising, oh, I swear I saw a young boy down in the gutter. He was starting to foam in the heat. So we've got evil in the air, thunder in the sky, and there is a bloated corpse of a young boy that is foaming under under humid conditions. All right, so this is the stuff that Meatloaf says too fast for anybody to really get it through their heads. Right. But what the scene is said is... Corpse the, right off the bat. Corpses, sirens, fires. <laughs> right. Uh, there's, there's a man with a knife and a corpse at his feet that is foaming <laughs> under under the, the effects of the extreme heat. Okay. Right? <laughs> okay. So, then we go to the... The, the lovey part. The lovey part, which, personally, this, this seems like a lot of pressure to put on a person, 
Oh, oh, baby, you're the only thing in this whole world that's pure and good and right, and wherever you are and wherever you go, there's always going to be some light. So basically, only you can save me. And you're pure and good and right. You're totally pure and good and right. You're that No one can live up to this. But, no. But this is like Jim Steinman's 1950s, like, kind of... 1950s romance comics idea. Of... So, but if you're actually listening to the words, you have no idea where the lovey stuff comes in with the bloated but corpse. But wait, <laughs> he changes gear and he's like, I got to get out. I got to break it out now before the final crack of dawn. So he's like, you're the only thing in this world where there are fires and corpses and foaming rot. <laughs> However, I got a jam. <laughs> I got a jam. So wait, is he dawn, saying he's... He's leaving. I love you. He's le- I love you. We're leaving. We got we to gotta make the most of this one night together. When it's over, you know, we'll both be so alone. So he's got to go somewhere. We On, don't know where. Right. We're we not told where. We don't know where yet. Okay. But, I mean, after we get through the chorus, which everybody knows. He says he's going to come back. Like Okay. When the day is done and the sun goes down and the moonlight's shining through, then like a sinner before the gates of heaven, I'll come crawling on back to you. So he's got to go somewhere for some reason we don't know, and he's got to do it before daybreak. In the rest of the song, does he ever give us a reason? Why he's got to go? Yeah. Personally, I think the reason is simply a fucking motorcycle. <laughs> <laughs> So, because do you mean that he, you know it, because he has a motorcycle? I or? mean, he launches into it and okay. he says it like like Meatloaf's vocals. He's like <laughs> he's like a Pentecostal minister. All right, like he spits this. I am already lost because if he loves her so much, it seems really like he loves the motorcycle more. Well, uh, it it gets because we get into full like Kenneth Anger like fetishizing a a, a vehicle. Oh, like like point. crash shit. Uh, like oh, well that might actually tie in. When the metal is hot and the engine is hungry, and we're all about to see the light. Do you think maybe he's talking to the motorcycle the entire time, and there's never even a woman? No, there's there's a woman. There's a woman because. Maybe the next part, nothing ever grows in this rotten old hole and everything is stunted and lost and nothing really rocks and nothing really rolls and nothing's ever worth the cost. I mean, that's beautiful. Like, Jim Steinman is really, really talented. Yeah, he's, he's just insane. He's, he's a genius. <laughs> he's a mad genius. You know who loved Jim Steinman? Who? Courtney Love. I know, that's all that needs to be said. Cool. Except for the rest <laughs> of the song. All right, so... Now we get to the point where the protagonist in the song, he's expressing that he's damned. We, mm-hmm. He knows that he's damned if he never gets out, and maybe he's damned if he does. But with every other beat he's got left in his heart, he wants to be damned with this woman. He wants to be damned over he's and over again. He's got to be damned. He wants to be damned. He's, he's got to be, be damned. But if he's got to be damned, he, he wants, wants to, to be, be damned. damned with her. Right. Are you sure this isn't the motorcycle? Because I still think it might be the motorcycle. I don't know. Can you dance with a motorcycle? I don't know. But... If anybody can, Meatloaf can. So, we get to the bridge of the song. 
And this song is also amazing for for its various insane changes of tempo. It is like five different songs right. in one. And like when you think that this is one of the biggest selling records of all time, I have no idea how that's even possible. Like Paradise by the Dashboard Light goes a long way, but that's like three different songs in and of itself. I mean, I actually think maybe it's kind of prescient because sometimes when I listen, a lot of times when I listen to Top 40 radio now, I'm like, why is this not just one song? Every song is like three songs in one. It can't just stay. And I'm like, maybe it's just our ADD culture, but maybe it's actually just Jim Steinman's influence. Maybe. (laughs) Maybe. Okay, so... He's on. He can. He's visualizing himself on the bike now. Mm-hmm. He's racing. He's he's burning rubber. He can see himself tearing up the road faster than any other boy has ever gone. Any other boy. Any other boy. Boy is a very telling word here. It ties into that whole adolescent kind of notion of. Yeah, this of is our second boy song tonight. Boy, don't make me want to change my motorcycle crash. But he's faster than any other boy has ever gone. Right. Ever. Also, at this point, we know that Meatloaf is not a boy. Right. Meatloaf has maybe never, and ever been a boy. Neither was Jim Steinman. But they didn't meet when they were boys. They met when they were doing, like, uh, like repertory theater together. Oh, that makes complete yeah. sense. And then, like, Bad Out of Hell and everything came after Meatloaf's notoriety raised from playing Eddie in Rocky Horror. Mm-hmm. But, uh, so, he's tearing down the road faster than any boy has ever gone. <laughs> His skin is raw, but his soul is ripe, and no one's going to stop him now. He's going to make his escape. So maybe the whole reason he wants to leave is because nothing ever grows in the rotten old hole that is they're he... both in. But he can't stop thinking of the girl. So he definitely doesn't have the girl with him. No. He's like, I can't stop thinking of you. And since he's thinking of her, unfortunately... Oh no, here we go. He never sees the sudden curve till it's way too late. Is that an actual lyric in the song? That or? is. And I never seen a side till it's way too late. So that's something that people are definitely missing because it's like, uh, it's toss off in Meatloaf's very fast patter delivery. Well, I mean, you you can tell because, well, it's signified in the song by the sound, by the audio of a motorcycle crash. Oh, now I remember. Right. Yes. Because this, this tempo... This like builds and builds and builds, and then we get the motorcycle crash, and we then flash to the death scene of the motorcycle riding protagonist. <laughs> then I'm dying at the bottom of a pit in the blazing sun, torn and twisted at the foot of a burning bike, and I think somebody somewhere must be tolling a bell. <laughs> And just when you think the the imagery can't get any more grandiose than that, the last thing I see is my heart still beating. So are we to infer from that that his motorcycle crashed and it crashed so hard that his heart flew out of his chest and then he looks over and the last thing he sees is his pumping heart while he's thinking of the girl that he ran away from for no reason see i like to i personally and in my headcanon in my 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 movie of the mind to use a nesmith (laughs) phrase he is torn and twisted at the foot of a burning bike right so he's laying the he's laying at the bottom of the bike 
But he is so jacked up that his eyelet, his chest is ripped open. Oh, so he, you think he's looking down. And he can down. look down and just see <laughs> his heart beating in his own chest. <laughs> then he's breaking out of his body and flying away like a bat out of hell. Like a bat out of hell. Which is the only thing that anyone ever remembers about Bat Out of Hell. Like a bat out of hell. Is Bat Out of Hell, I'll be gone when the morning comes. Right. But torn and twisted the foot. Yeah, he looks down and he sees his own heart in his chest beating for the last time. We start off with fires, sirens, a killer with a knife, a bloated corpse, and we end with this biomechanical nightmare of someone looking down and seeing their own heart beating in their chest for the last time. Completely nonsensical and could have been avoided if he just would have stayed with the love of his life. And absolutely outstanding and poetic in every way. God bless you, Jim Studd. Thank you, Jim Studd. And uh, right now, I think we should take a little break for a word from our sponsors. All right, we're back. And our last song for this episode is one that is extremely um, misinterpreted. Yeah, I think misinterpreted is, is the yeah. right word for Born in the USA. Yeah, from, from the get-go. Pretty much everybody gets it wrong because everybody thinks that it is a very patriotic shout, a... a a yop of patriotism, which it is exactly the opposite of that. And I know when we first met, I, I had this vision of Bruce Springsteen that was basically just like the backside of him. <laughs> and, and I just was like, okay, whatever, Bruce Springsteen. And I had never done any sort of deep dive into Bruce Springsteen. And I just, I kind of gave you the business. Like, I really... I was a shithead about it. I was like, all right, you're a Bruce Springsteen fan, whatever. Yeah, this is, this is before <laughs> some of the, like, retroactively, Bruce has gotten his, like, hipster credi- and indie credibility. But at the time, uh, you took a fair amount of guff for being a Bruce Springsteen <laughs> fan in general. And... You know, no doubt it's because of some of the the synthesizers on the Born in the USA. Oh, yeah, definitely. (laughs) And because of this song just seeming like it's um, just seeming like it is played at barbecues where people are getting down on the 4th of July. Well, yeah, I mean, Reagan tried to Reagan referenced it in a speech where he was like the songs of hope, like like those of a young man named Bruce Springsteen. And. (laughs) It, it's it's Bruce has actively discouraged people from using it in their political campaigns. But one of the reasons I wanted to pick this, in addition to the the Steinman connection, uh, we're coming up on election season, so somebody's going to be rolling around mm-hmm. in a big dumb bus, blaring "Born in the USA." Somewhere. And I mean, I think Chris Christie tried to do that too. Probably. I mean, he's he's a huge boss fan, and he's got the Jersey connection. But like, "Born in the USA." Born in the USA was originally written, um, it was going to be a 
part of Nebraska. Nebraska is this is this dark record that Bruce ended up recording by himself with like a four track. But it, it's going to be a double album. That's where some of these songs started. Belatedly, Nebraska is probably my favorite Bruce album. It's a great album. Now that I am a Bruce fan. But uh, the original title for the song was Straight Up Vietnam. Really? That yeah. makes so much more sense. Yeah, the, the original title of the song was Straight Up Vietnam. He was working on this song called Vietnam, and Paul Schrader, the, the screenwriter, uh, also director, uh, directed the better of the two Exorcist prequels, <laughs> also uh, directed the remake of Cat People with Natasha Kinski and Malcolm <laughs> McDowell, which features an excellent theme song by David Bowie and Giorgio Moroder. I can for a thousand um, which there's a Bang and Danzig cover of. But um, <laughs> Paul Schrader was writing a, a script called Born in the USA. Um, and he sent it to Bruce and he wanted Bruce to do some music for it. So Bruce was working on this song called Vietnam. And he just swapped out s- some of the words with Born in the USA. Oh. Um, and Bruce... Did not go to Vietnam, obviously, but he was of age. He he got his draft card, and like a lot of his friends did go to Vietnam. So how did Bruce get out of it? Um, I'm not sure. Uh, I know he failed his physical from story time with Uncle Bruce on every live Bruce show. There are inevitably several segments of story time with Uncle Bruce. Where he just sort of breaks down what the songs are about. Or just like tells you something that happened to him that mm-hmm. day or whatnot. And like on the on the 75 to 85 box set, Bruce tells a story about how when he got his draft card and he and his old man had uh, a lot of friction between them. But uh, Bruce had long hair at the time and he was playing in bands already and things like that. And, and his dad was like, oh, I can't... And this is it. This, <laughs> this is, is a, me this doing, is a Bruce impression. It's more meta. This is me doing an impression of Bruce Springsteen doing an impression of his dad, which is I can't wait till the army gets you. They're gonna get you and they're gonna make a man out of you. And uh Bruce goes and he fails his physical and he comes home and his dad's like, well, what do they say? What do they say? And Bruce goes, I failed. And he goes, That's good. <laughs> so you know ultimately there's like this sweet moment that bruce goes into but uh he had a lot of friends that died in nam and you being of that age you couldn't escape it culturally so anyway back to the paul schrader connection he he writes ends up writing this song uh born in usa that was originally supposed to be on nebraska uh the tonality of it is underst- is misunderstood and bruce talks about how the sound of the song leads to the the misunderstanding of the song. It's because it sounds so bombastic. Right. It sounds uh, like an anthem. It doesn't sound like what it actually is. Right. And uh, the synthesizers, there's like, they sound like chimes, you know. Mm. And, and, uh, you know, basically Bruce compares it to the same way that the people sing uh, Woody Guthrie's This Land is Your Land. Yeah, 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 yeah. So... But Born in the USA, which he's subsequently uh, redone numerous times in, in like, sparse acoustic style. Uh, he changed, like, Bruce, one of the great things about Bruce is when you see live shows, you never know how he's going to change the music. Mm-hmm. And he usually plays for upwards of three hours. Yeah, yeah. I've seen four-hour Bruce shows, which, Even you know. still, which means that he's just... 
He's he's not of this world, really. No, he he's the boss. <laughs> Who's the boss? Tony Danza? No. no. <laughs> All right, that's a that's a old Ben Stiller. Joke. <laughs> um, so born in the USA, contrary to what uh, campaigning politicians would like you to think is a a protest song. It is a song about the helplessness and the hopelessness. Well, not hopelessness, but kind of like it's it's like a uh a resistance, you know, uh, of the the condition you're in when you come back from that kind of untenable, unwinnable situation. Uh as Bruce says, uh the only war, quote, the only war America ever lost. Uh at that point. To date. <laughs> at that point in time. So, from the first line of the song, it's apparent that it's that it's not a jovial, kind of happy-go-lucky affair. Born down in a dead man's town. So, is that a specific dead man's town that he is referring to, or it's just a turn of phrase? Uh, I don't know. In spring, in Springsteenia, Springsteenia, <laughs> I mean, it's all... Towns that rip the bones from your back. Suicide right, right, maps. right. You know, it's it's gypsies and fortune tellers, mm-hmm. and, and it's it's a, a menagerie of unsavory individuals, often with bits of jovial of uh, joyfulness sprinkled in. Right. You know, there's the occasional like rousing bar buster rocking number, and but there's there's a lot of bleakness. Like Nebraska is, you know, takes its name from the like cross country killing spree of Charles Starkweather and Carol Ann Fugit. I mean, I think that Bruce is actually a lot more bleak in general than people think that he is. Yeah, and I think that has a lot to do with his performance. And, has, and yeah. the way his band functions together, especially on stage, because when they play, it's all joy. Yeah. And that's what people take away from it. But a lot of the songs are mostly super serious stuff. Very grave issues, like like Born in the USA. Yeah. And, and it's pretty emblematic of, of Bruce's oeuvre. And he kind of designs his shows to be... Like some of them, when he's touring on a more serious record, it's always a descent into darkness, and then he raises you back up to the light afterwards. Like, like at at points, it sounds like a revival meeting. Totally. End up like a dog that's been beat too much. Too much. Too. You spend half your life just covering up. Born in the USA, I was born in the USA. So the big chorus that everybody sings. Right. That everybody. I think that what we're probably going to end up with as we go through each episode is that people generally only pay attention to and remember choruses. Right. Right. And, uh, a lot of times people like uh, Bruce has also said, he's like, people uh, pay attention to how a song makes them feel more than they do the lyrical content. Totally. Yeah. So, you know, the scenario in the first verse, you have someone who's, who's in a, in a go nowhere, in a go nowhere town, Who's being beaten metaphorically or literally? Because we know, we know in extreme cases of poverty that the domestic abuse and whatnot and child mm-hmm. abuse ramps up. Someone who doesn't have any options. Someone who doesn't have any options gets into trouble in his hometown. The next verse is got in a little hometown jam, and frequently back then, uh, and even through the 1980s, as it were, like I, I've known people that this has happened to. You, you get a choice from a judge 
where it's like you either go into jail or you're go you're going into service. Which is not strictly legal, but judges do things that are not strictly legal all the time in courts. So got in a little hometown jam, so they put a rifle in my hand, sent me off to a foreign land to go and kill the yellow man. Clearly we're talking about Vietnam. Clearly. We're we're fully in Vietnam then. Repeat the course. Protagonist gets back from the war, is trying to find a job. The person running the refinery says, son, if it was up to me, like probably a middle manager doesn't, you know, right. but they don't want to take a risk on, on such someone who's such a, uh, such a, you know, po- possibly a, a liability. Which is know? such a small line, but it actually speaks so much more than just that small line because it's talking about the history of what happened after Vietnam and the son, if it was up to me, is just the one line. But behind that is like the the employers being like, I my hands are tied here, but if I could do something for you, I would, which is something that happened over and over again in real life. Yeah, and uh, you know, you're a soldier coming back, and and like with a lot of the the anti Vietnam protesters, there wasn't a distinction made between the people who were giving the orders. And the people who had to carry those orders out. So right. when soldiers were coming back, like people were protesting at them. Like, and the last mm. thing anybody needs when they're coming back from a war, at least in my opinion, this is, this is purely my opinion. Like someone's coming back from a war. Uh, you are in the service. You are, you are told to execute certain plans and strategies and orders. You think you're doing the right thing for your country. And sometimes you don't even know why you're doing it other than you were ordered to do it. And then you come home and people who have not been in that situation are are spitting at you. Right. And, and, and they're projecting all sorts of stuff on you. Right. And they're projecting the motives of the people who who perpetuated that war onto you directly. Right. Like this is a this is the Morrissey conflates these on his latest record, and it, it, it's it's a bummer to me. But uh, when, the next line, it went down to see my VA man. He said, son, don't you understand? And I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I completely, maybe, I, I maybe don't understand that. So the, the, vet, the VA, the Veterans Affairs guy, is telling him, son, you don't understand what? Well, I mean, it could be any number of things. But son, don't you understand? Don't you understand how society views this? Don't you understand how the country is wounded by this war we lost? Uh, and don't, don't you understand how you are a living specter of failure that reminds us of, right. of all the lives that we, that we sacrificed for an unclear, unexecution, an unexecutable winning strategy. Right. So the the Veterans Affair person is actually straight up being like, you you were wronged and you don't understand. Yeah. And, you know, it goes even further. Like the, the protagonist had a brother at Quezon fighting off the Viet Cong. And then this is one of my favorite lines in the song. They're still there. He's all gone. It's like, so ultimately... All of this was done, and nothing changed. Right, like uh, all all of this grief and hardship and sorrow and death. But he, the soldier, is all gone. Yeah, his brother. His yeah, brother. Yeah, yeah, his brother is all gone. He had a woman he loved in Saigon. I've got a picture of him in her arms. So he's he's carrying around this picture of his brother and this woman he loved in Saigon. Presumably, presumably, uh, presumably indigenous. <laughs> 
So is that based on something that happened to Bruce or someone he knew, or are we just thinking that I, he's I don't know. extract? He never spoke about it, as uh, far as you know. Uh, I mean, he might have. He, he, I haven't read his autobiography mm. this year. Uh, I mean, I've read the the big book of Bruce lyrics, and <laughs> I've read other Springsteen biographies, and I've listened to enough story times with Uncle Bruce that. Uh, but I haven't heard him address that line specifically. And now we get to where the song, we get to the song's conclusion. And it's, it's no wonder to me that Bruce loves like Cormac McCarthy mm. and, and, and things like Flannery O'Connor, like down in the shadow of the penitentiary out by the gas fires of the refinery. I'm 10 years burning down the road, nowhere to run, nowhere to go. It's a lot of. Um, American dystopia shades going yeah. on, and and frequent like Bruce loves to loves to visit and revisit the imagery of uh, the lone driver on a darkened highway at night by like by himself trying to either run from his town, run from his past, run from the cops in some cases. Mm-hmm. Like it's that great, it's that great American lost soul vehicle imagery that marriage of the automobile as a symbol of freedom but also as as a a symbol of carrying a a totally lost soul and then so in the outro chorus he's repeating the born in the usa but he adds the two separate things that aren't in the chorus which is the i'm a long gone daddy in the usa which sort of harkens back to the he's all gone line right with like the the being gone and then the last line or like the the mental state long gone daddy you know that yeah. thousand, the so-called thousand thousand yard stare right right yeah you know and yeah. then the last line i'm a cool rockin daddy in the usa which a lot of people read as cheesy or or something like that is actually like satirical it could I you could read it that way. Sure. I've always read it as satirical. Like read since it as, I realized that the song is not what it it seems to be. I've always read it as satir- satirical because it doesn't Bruce doesn't traffic a lot in like the the cheesiness of the way that line sounds and the way that he says it, I think brings up it seems more satirical to me than anything else. I I think that's valid. Um it's not the way I interpret it. I interpret it as defiant. As really? Like after all of the, like, when you suffer so much that you finally reach a point where you're like, fuck it. Right. Like, and you stop being haunted and ashamed so much. I mean, you have a lot of ghosts in your past, but you finally embrace to a degree, your identity, even if you can't change it or don't necessarily like it. And you're just like, you're just, you know, I'm 10 years down the road. You can only suffer for so long before you're just like, fuck it. I'm a cool rockin' daddy in the USA. <laughs> so do you think that that brings the song around back to like a more, um, do you think it ends on an optimistic note then? Like, is there any optimism in Born in the USA is actually a pretty good question. I don't know if it's optimistic I think you can be defiant without being optimistic. Totally. Like, I think Cool Hand Luke is defiant without being optimistic. Yeah. So, and it's a, I don't know, it's probably unrelated just because they're, they're two of my favorite things, but like Cool Hand Luke, 
Uh, cool Hand Luke says that they succeeded in breaking his spirit. Like when when they're physically punishing him for days on end. Mm. And then he just tries to escape again. He's like, yeah, they broke me, but like, I'm not broken now. Like, and he goes out with that Luke smile. Like he goes out, like he forces them to shoot him down rather than take him back to camp. Mm. And I kind of see the, the end of Born in the USA as that defiant howl in the face of poor bureaucratic decision making and, and a culture... That is that sees him as as a reminder of a wound that won't heal. Right. So what you, what you tried to do to me still didn't break me. Right. Like yeah, you came close. You came close, but I'm still here. I'm a cool rockin' daddy in the USA. <laughs> right. And that right. is my perspective on Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA. So next time you listen to Born in the USA, listen to the words. Thanks again for spending some time with us. We'd love to hear from you on Twitter at LTTWpod or our Gmail account at LTTWpod at gmail.com. There's a link for our Spotify on our Twitter where you can find episode songs and other playlists. You can listen at LTTWcast.com and visit our Patreon to support us at patreon.com slash LTTW. We'll be adding levels where you can vote on songs and other cool stuff soon. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This podcast is a presentation of Coffee Fin Studios, LLC, all rights reserved. Meow. That's all the songs.